Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John, and we're going to start in verse chapter number 4. The book of 1 John in chapter number 4. We're now starting on our downhill slide of the last part of this series of how we got our English Bible. And we've been taking our time to go from defining our terms to explaining the manuscript evidence to proving that we did have a Bible from the time of the apostles to modern times, that there's always been a lineage, there's always been evidence that we've had a Bible, that someone didn't make it up, that God has always preserved His Word, and that no one had an opportunity to mess with it. We went and explained the Antiochian text and explained that this was the preserved text that God has preserved for all of these years, and we had witnessed the Alexandrian text, the text that had been corrupted by Origen and then further corrupted by other individuals as time went on. And we saw how that became the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages. Now as we've taken some time to watch as this lineage has now gotten to England, we explained a little bit last time about the history of England and why it made it so ripe to be separate than the Roman Catholic Church, that God had used a lot of history and lining some things up to make it so the English people wanted their own Bible and a Bible that they could read in their own language. And now, as we're going to see things progress fairly quickly, that God had done quite a bit in the country of England to get the people the Word of God. And we're so thankful for it. And we're going to explain some of that tonight. But we're going to start in the book of 1 John chapter 4. But before we do, let's take some time to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, I'm just asking that our minds and our hearts would be on you. Settle me down inside of your will that we could present this material as quick, as clearly as possible, as understandable as possible. And that we would have a great appreciation of how you preserved your word and how you worked in giving us your word into our language that we could see it for ourselves and understand it ourselves and read the promises for ourselves. And we thank you for the special grace that you gave to allow us to have the Bible in our own language. Fill me with your spirit and guide me through your ways, Lord, that we may be pleasing to you, exalt you, and exalt your word that we can have confidence in the Bible that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in the book of 1 John chapter number 4. 1 John chapter 4. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 1. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard it that it should come and even now already is it. In the world. And if you have a mark in things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1? 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, where it gives the commandment, try the spirits. Try the spirits. Now, if we are to try the spirits, and the Bible explains in this passage that we're to try the spirits, that we're just not supposed to accept everything that comes down the pike, because there are many false prophets that have come into the world. The Bible goes on to explain that... <coughs> That we have indeed in the age that we live in, the spirit of Antichrist. Remember the word anti just doesn't mean against. And so we're not living in the spirit that's against Christ, even though that's true to a degree. 
The word anti carries the idea of replacing Christ. We live in the spirit where people are trying to replace the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, with the Jesus of their own making. And so it'd be one thing if someone came in here tonight and said, Bless God, there is no God. There is no Christ. It's false. It's a fairy tale. We would tune them out and toss them out, right? But... If someone came in here and began to speak about Jesus, but began to take a Jesus in just a little bit different way, well then he may not be caught. And he may deceive some people because he is trying to teach a Jesus that's different from the Bible, but people may not catch it because it sounds good. And it sounds wonderful. And it sounds loving. But it doesn't line up with the Jesus of the Bible. And so the Bible tells us that we're supposed to try the spirits. And all of it is supposed to line up against the doctrine of Christ. So let's think about this. There's only one way to put a doctrine or a belief on trial. There's only one way to put a sermon on trial. There's only one way to put a pamphlet or a teaching on trial. And... There's only one way to put a spirit on trial. How? We take what the individual says and bring it to the word of God and sees if it matches. That's what we're supposed to do is try the spirits, line them up against what the Bible has to say and see if they line up. If they match, then that statement is correct. If they don't match, then that statement is wrong. Now, if the only way that we can determine whether it is correct or not is through the Word of God, then Satan is going to do his best to confuse or get rid of God's Word. That makes sense. If Satan wants to confuse the people, he has to get rid of the Bible. So if Satan convinced the people that there are 20 books calling themselves the Bible, and all of those 20 books or whatever we have now says something different, then the people can't tell what's true. I think someone was telling me the other day, well, my Bible says something different. Well, if your Bible says something different than the Bible, then there's something wrong somewhere. And God is not the author of confusion. And that's what we have today is that we have Bibles that are lining up to favor people's doctrine and now people can't tell what's right and what's not right. This is the whole heart of the matter. It's not the idea that we prefer one Bible over another. It's the idea that we want to know what's true about Christ and what's not true about Christ. This is why the matter of proving that we do have a perfect Bible is so necessary and so essential because we are told to test the spirits, to try the spirits, and we have to line everything up with the Word of God. And if we don't have the Word of God, we cannot accomplish that. Does that make sense? So, let's kind of do a review of the Bible lineage to kind of catch up what's going on. So, let's start off with the Alexandrian text. In the Alexandrian text, they're eventually going to come to the Latin Vulgates, which become the official uh, Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. And eventually, Wycliffe is going to use the text of the Roman Catholic Church, and he is going to attempt to write a Bible for the English-speaking people. Now, we appreciate the efforts. It came from the wrong text, so it's not part of our lineage, but we do appreciate that he tried to give the Word of God to the English-speaking people so they could read it to themselves. Now, later on, the Roman Catholics are going to take some time to um, write a Bible in the English-speaking language called the Reims Douay. This is the official Roman Catholic Bible for the English-speaking people. You could buy one off the bookshelf even today. It's called a Catholic Bible. And then later on, this Alexandrian text are going to go into the modern versions, all the other modern versions. Now, we have another lineage, the Antiochian text. The Antiochian text is going to go into the Texas Receptus, which is Erasmus's third work. And Erasmus is going to give us the um, word of God or the preserved Greek text. And from this Greek text, the correct Greek text, we're going to be able to translate the Bible into English. Then we're going to go, what we're going to hit tonight, speaking about Tyndale's work, Tyndale in 1525. That's going to move to Coverdale, to the Matthews Bible, to the Great Bible, 
Then we're going to cover the Geneva and the Bishop's Bible and explain why they're in our lineage and what is going on. And all of it is going to go to the main event, which we'll speak about next time, dealing with the translation of the authorized King James Version. Now, that's just to kind of catch up where we were at. Let's cover some of this history tonight. We'll start with William Tyndale. William Tyndale said in a debate with a church leader, If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. That quote pretty much sums up the entire life of William Tyndale. So as he's having a debate with a church leader, he finally says, listen here, I'm going to make it my life's goal to give the word of God to the English speaking people. And if I have my way, the plow boy is going to know more Bible than you do. Because the plow boy is going to be able to read the word of God for himself. And you're just going to depend on whatever teachings you have. Now that's a blessing that he determined that he wanted the word of God to be in the hands of every person. Not just religious people, but even a plowboy can have the word of God available in their hands. Now, some other history that's going on. And by the way, God's in charge of history. In 1453, the Muslims invaded Byzantium, Constantinople, and it's going to become Turkey. Now remember, this is the housing storage house of the Greek text. Now, for the, um, uh, the preserved Antiochian text has really been preserved with the Antiochs. God allowed the Muslims to attack at the right time, the right place, and when this happened, the Greek scholars took their manuscripts and they fled to Europe to flee away from the Muslims. Now what's going to happen as the Greek manuscripts are now starting to flood um, Europe, a great wealth of manuscripts are now available within Europe that's not in the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. Meaning now the church doesn't control this flow of information. It's free and available for anyone to grab a hold of. And people start to grab a hold of it. William Tinsdale himself was trained in Greek and Hebrew. In fact, he was trained in seven different languages. He was someone who understood languages. He earned his bachelor's degree from Oxford at 1512 at the age of 16, by the way. How would you like to earn your college degree at age 16? And he earned his master's degree in 1515. He later studied at Cambridge just to round out his education. In due time, he became fluent in six or seven languages. Now, for those of you who may have not learned another language, let me tell you, that takes some talent and it takes some skill. It takes some work to not just learn, to conversate, but it's a different thing altogether to master a different language, to be able to know how the language works and how to put it together. Furthermore, his sense of the English style was on. Paralleled, meaning that he understood the language of English and was able to communicate it to other people. William Tyndale set out to translate the scriptures from the Greek and Hebrew languages. So remember, up to this time, you had Wycliffe who was translating from the Latin Vulgate, which was the corrupt text. Here, Tyndale said, you know what, let's go back to the preserved text and let's see what the Bible actually has to say. And so he began his work in 1524 in Hamburg, Germany. He translated the New Testament in about 1525. He went to Cologne to have it printed. Uh, there was no printing press in Hamburg where he had been working, which necessitated the work being done to Cologne on the uh, press of Peter Kundwell. Now, there was an enemy of Tyndale by John Coculus, who, by the way, was the deacon of the Holy Blessed uh, Mary Church. Now, if you're the deacon of the Holy Blessed Mary Church, you're not going to like the Bible. And he's going to oppose it. And so he exposed Tyndale's work and reported him to the Pope and the authorities to get him arrested. What was his crime? Trying to give the word of God into the English language so the people could read it for themselves. So Tyndale fled with the printed sheets to Worms. That's not a creature that crawls. That's Worms, Germany. Worms. And finished the printing. He had two editions, one with a four-column work. Remember that they column did it a little bit differently. So this had four columns. And then another one with eight columns without notes. 
Now, scholars believe that the eight-column work was done because Colloquialis had sent a description of the four-column work to England to try to stop its importation. Meaning that, oh, we got a copy of uh, Tyndale's work, so if you see a Bible like this, make sure you stop it. So Tyndale said, well, we're just going to change the format of it and get it to England anyways. So Tyndale and his associates put together a Bible in a different form and appearance to get it past the customs officials so that way they could get it into England. These New Testaments were brought secretly or secretly brought to England and when they got to England, people could not wait to read it. And um, there's all kinds of fascinating stories. I've got a book I'll tell you about a little bit later about Bible smuggling. But they got to the place where Tyndale's work was outlawed. And the king had made an outlawed. And they were smuggling in Bibles through the big skirts of the ladies who worked inside of uh, the uh, the king's palace. And they were just smuggling them into England by using those big skirts. Just trying to get the word of God into the house of the people. However, the measures against these Bibles were soon adopted. And it was made illegal for anyone to have one of these Tyndale Bibles. Thousands of copies of the Bible were printed between 1526 to 1530. However, the destruction of Tyndale's work had such success that only one complete copy of the eight-column edition remains and a single fragment of the four-column edition. Again, the Tyndale Bible was outlawed and the whole government of England did everything they could to destroy that Bible and they did almost a complete job that we only have two, uh, one fragment and one whole left of Tyndale's work out of the thousands and thousands that was printed. It was that much oppression just to keep the word of God being in the hands of people. Now, Tyndale continued the work of the translation. In 1530, the Pentateuch was published. Now, remember, he first just printed the New Testament. Now he's starting to work on more. He got the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And then he finally completed Jonah in 1531. And then books from Joshua to Second Chronicles were left in manuscript form. That means written form. So instead of putting on a printing press, all you had was the script form. And so he had translated it into paper, but he didn't, wasn't able to get it to the print to get finished. Tyndale revised the New Testament in 1534. Now there's a reason why he had to go back and revise the New Testament. Because the Bible was being so popularized that they couldn't stop the printing. They couldn't stop people reading it. So some guy by the name of George Joy took Tyndale's work and then made little footnotes under it saying, well, the Latin Vulgate says, and this should be translated this way. And we have uh, doubts whether this should be in the Bible at all. And basically made the footnotes where it brought into question the word of God. So Tyndale had to do another revision to try to counteract this guy who was trying to make people not believe the Bible was the word of God. Isn't it amazing what people will do just to keep the word of God in the hands of people? Now the nature of Tyndale's work was an independent translation of one man. Now this is going to be important. Um, we appreciate the work that he did, but when it's left in the hands of one man, there's a lot of temptation or possibility of error. Because that one person may have a point of view and may skip something or translate something to reflect his point of view. Does that make sense? I'm just saying there's a temptation there. Now, this is going to lead up to the authorized version, which we'll hit next week. But we're trying to say this is just the work of one man. We appreciate the work that he did. And his work was amazing. It was based off the Hebrew and Greek languages by making you, and while making use of the available sources, such as Luther's German translation, the Latin translation published by Erasmus, and Purvey's revision of Wycliffe's work. Meaning that as Tyndale translated it, he used the Greek and he used the Hebrew, but he used other sources to kind of make sure, okay, yeah, I did this right. Oh, wait, and used it to kind of double check his work. He was not dependent on these, however, but he based his work primarily or on completely on the Hebrew and Greek text. He referred to those other sources just for references for difficult passages. And there are some difficult passages he wanted to make sure he translated correctly. Now, his intimate acquaintance with both Hebrew and Greek cannot be questioned. He understood those languages. And by the way, it's amazing. 
Now, William Tyndale was an absolute genius. Now, again, we covered that he graduated college when he was 16 and then went on and got his master's afterwards. Now, to master three languages so a person could translate from two languages into a third and then have men for hundreds of years afterwards check your work and say, you know what, he did it right. That's pretty amazing. He knew what he was doing. His work was, was just superb. And we're thankful for the, uh, the work that God allowed him to do. In 1535, he was living in Antwerp, and he was betrayed by Henry Philip, an Englishman, into the hands of the officers for Charles V. We don't know who planned and financed the plot that end his life, whether it was English. Some people believe it was Henry VIII. Others believe it was other people. We don't know. But we do know who the person it was that betrayed him, Henry Phillips. A man who had been accused of robbing his own father and gambling himself to poverty. So here's a guy who has ruined his life financially. And someone came up to him and said, hey, you want to make some money? Okay. What do I have to do? Make friends with William Tyndale. Make him think that you're a good guy. Find out everything you can about him. And then report where he's at. And that's exactly what happened. Phillips became Tyndale's guest at meals. And soon became one of the few privileged people to look at Tyndale's books. Look at his libraries. To look at what he was writing. What a great privilege it was. And then in May 1535, Phillips lured Tyndale away from the safety of his quarters and into the arms of soldiers. Tyndale was immediately taken to the castle Vividor, which is in the, um, Belgium, the great state prison of the Low Countries. And notice this, he was accused of heresy. Now the Roman Catholic Church uh, put him in jail. They charged him and they tried him. And his trial, his... Um, his, um, what he was charged with was heresy. Now, think about this. The only thing he did was print the Bible into the English language and the Roman Catholic Church called it heresy. Tells you quite a bit about them. That they did not want to get the, the Bible and the people. Now remember, the Roman Catholic Church had already made it an outlaw. They said that if you read the Bible, you would go to hell. That's still on the books, by the way, in the Roman Catholic Church. To have a church to say that someone reads the Bible, they'll go to hell. And so when he tries to give the word of God into the hands of the people, the Roman Catholic Church rebelled and sentenced him to death. He suffered in prison for 16 months until finally came his execution date. On Friday, October 6th, after local officials took their seats, Tyndale was brought to the cross in the middle of the town square and given a chance to repent. So listen here, you need to apologize for translating the Bible into English. No, I can't do that. Listen, we're going to put you to death until you confess that you did wrong and that you shouldn't have translated the Bible. I can't do that. And so when he, that was refused, he was given a moment to pray. The English historian John Fox said that his cry was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. By the way, if you don't know, you should know some of the um, last statements of sinners and saints. You should know that one. That his prayer, as he was getting ready to be executed, was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Then he was bound to a beam. Both an iron chain and a rope were put around his neck. Gunpowder was added to the brush and to the logs. And then at the signal of the local official, the executioner standing behind Tyndale, quickly tightened the noose and strangled him. And then they burned the body of William Tyndale. Just because he tried to give the Bible into the English language so the people could read it for themselves. Then an official took up a lighted torch, handed it to the executioner who set the wood ablaze. And of course, famous art has come from it that he is praying that God would open the eyes of the king of England as he died just for the fact that he tried to give the word of God into the hands of the people. By the time of Tyndale's death in 1536, 50,000 copies of the New Testament had been distributed. Now, remember that there's a different population between now and then. 50,000 copies would have covered 
the whole nation of England. And so the word of God had spread out. So everyone in England could have, at least could have looked at it or looked for themselves. That's a lot of copies to be given out. Which brings us to another man, Miles Coverdale. Tyndale had a good friend and a co-worker by the name of Miles Coverdale. He was an Augustinian friar in Cambridge. His search for the truth led to Luther's writings, which he quickly, quickly absorbed, and they changed his life forever. He became a believer and took up the cause of the Reformation. Coverdale soon found himself preaching against idols and preaching against the Mass. As an amazing people came to know Christ as their Savior, and then said, hey, you know what? The, what the Roman Catholic Church is doing, it's evil, it's wrong. The Bible says, do not bow down to idols. And look at what they're doing. This idea of the Mass, we're not eating the body of Christ. It doesn't bring salvation. Salvation is by faith through grace and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And so he found himself uh, <coughs> against the Roman Catholics. Uh, Coverdale was born in 1488 in Yorkshire. He studied at Cambridge. He was ordained a priest in 1514. And in 1531, he got a Bachelor of Canon Law at Cambridge. He engaged in Bible translation from 1531 to 1540. He returned to England in 1548. He was made the chaplain of the king in 1551, and then the bishop of Exeter took his title away from him, said, nope, you've been giving the uh, Bible to English people. No, nope, we can't let you be chaplain no more, and so they fired him. <laughs> he received his doctorate degree in Cambridge in 1563, and then he died about 1568. In 1529, so that was the overview, let's go back, he helped Tyndale with the translation of the Pentateuch inside of English. So he started to work when Tyndale started to uh, say, well, let's work together to get the Bible out. And so he worked hand in hand with Tyndale. When the Catholic Queen Mary I came to the throne, by the way, what was her nickname? Bloody Mary. Good. Why was she called Bloody Mary? Because she killed as many Protestants and Baptists and anyone who wanted to read the Bible. Remember that she was the one that when she would get a hold of them, she would burn them and have their Bibles around their neck when they burnt. And so she got a taste for Protestant blood and she won at Coverdale. She won at Coverdale's pretty badly. If it hadn't been for the people of Denmark, she would have burned him at the stake. So he was, can you imagine what a life, now I didn't hit all the things with Tyndale, but you know Tyndale's life was always in danger. The, the uh, Catholic uh, <coughs> officials were always trying to arrest him. He couldn't trust anybody. And of course what happened when he did trust him. Same thing with Miles Coverdale. That just because of the fact that he was printing the Bible and trying to give the Bible to the people, his life was always in danger. Now, Mary I was the daughter of Henry VIII, just in case you needed to be reminded of English lineage and Henry things. Henry VIII is often hailed as a great reformer. And again, it is another trick to try to twist things around that if they could call him a great Protestant and what a great Protestant leader, he was not a good Protestant leader. The only reason why he broke away from the Catholic Church is because he wanted a divorce and the Pope told him no. And so he said, fine, I'm going to be a Protestant. He had no desire to be a Protestant. By the way, King Henry VIII had once got a title from the Pope as the great defender of the faith. That he was held as one of the great defenders of Roman Catholicism. And so it wasn't that he was a reformer, he was just mad at the Pope. Henry VIII hated Tyndale and prevented Tyndale's Bibles from entering the country and destroyed the ones that did enter. He hated the Word of God, did not want people to have the Bible. Bloody Mary was his daughter and she was determined to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. So to, for her to do that, she had to destroy all the Bibles because if people read their Bibles and they saw that it did not match up with the Roman Catholic Church, that the people would not go back to the Catholic Church. She had to get rid of them so that way the Roman Catholic Church can continue to dominate. The Coverdale Bible was finally published in 1535. At 1534, the year before Tyndale's arrest, Henry VIII had been petitioned by the upper house of the Convitation to authorize the English version of the scriptures. Basically, someone came and said, Henry VIII, 
would you uh, authorize for us to finally print the Bible into the English language? And he said, no, that's not going to happen. Thomas Craner exerted his influence in favor of this undertaking, suggesting it should be done, but they couldn't persuade him. These proposals were not met with favor, but they did much to stir the heart of Thomas Cromwell, the Secretary of State, who encouraged Miles Coverdale to publish the English translation. So even though the king of England wouldn't authorize it, the Secretary of State said, hey, work on it anyways and we'll see what we can do. Okay, and so Miles Coverdale continued to work. He was on the continent, meaning actual Europe, when Tyndale was executed. After all, he says, I don't want to be the same place as uh, where they're killing people. I'll stay over here and ship Bibles over. Cromwell urged him to speedily complete his translation. Hurry up, get the Bible written out. We need, we need this going. October 14, 1535, about a year before Tyndale's martyrdom, Coverdale's translation was published either at Zurich or Antwerp. You say, why don't you know? Well, because they started to find out that if you gave the name of where you printed it at, all of the, the Catholic soldiers will show up there. So we're not going to tell you where we're printing the Bible at. It's kind of just being safe. He was not a translator. And this is important to know about Miles Coverdell. He wasn't a translator. He was an editor. So what he did is he took Tyndale's work and he made a revision of it. He took other German and Latin versions and used them to make some changes in what Tyndale produced. Now he's not changing the meaning or whatever. He's trying to give a, a better form flow. The influence of Coverdale was not in his translating, but his influence in his language. What do we mean by that? Well, about 80% of our authorized version comes from Tyndale, but it came the way of Coverdale's improving of the language. So Tyndale got the translation right, but his style was very difficult and hard to read. It was very choppy. It was very difficult. And so what Miles Coverdale did is he gave it the meter. He gave it the flow. He gave it the transition, which makes the Bible very easy to memorize. That's what Coverdale did. And so he wasn't a translator, but he helped kind of put the language and put it in a syntax in a way that made sense and it flowed well. Does that make sense? By the way, they have proven by studies, I don't remember where the studies are, that the authorized version is the easiest version to memorize. And it's because of that meter, because of that flow, because of that poetry, the way that it's written. It is just a fantastic thing, and that comes because of Coverdale. Tyndale had a great deal to do with giving the words. Coverdale's the one who gave the style of the English Bible. Now, the Coverdale Bible was the first to have chapter summaries and headings. So, they did have the chapter divisions, but they, uh, he's the one who added chapter summaries. Alright, so this is what Jesus is doing here. And this is the parable of the fig tree. And this is Adam, and, and so they would give the headings, so that way you could kind of anticipate what you were supposed to be reading. Coverdale's Bible is sometimes called the Bug Bible. Remember, we've kind of hit some of these Bibles before and why they got some different names. Uh, this one comes from Psalm 91 verse 5. It says, Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by the day. Coverdale's Bible said this, So thou shalt not be, need to be afraid for the bugs by night. So I don't know what kind of bugs they had or how big the mosquitoes were where he was at, uh, but that was what was terrorizing them at night. So it was often called the Bugs Bible because of that. Then we move on to the Matthews Bible. So we had Tyndale's Bible and his revision. Then we had the Coverdale Bible, which kind of adapted some of the language. The next Bible to come in line was the Matthews Bible. This is the completed Tyndale version. So in the Tyndale Bible, some of the Old Testament was still in manuscript form. Remember, we had said that, that it was still handwriting form. What happened in the Matthews Bible is they finally got that to the printer. And instead of being manuscript form, it is now in print form. Then Coverdale did his work, which pretty much was a revision of Tyndale. The Matthews Bible took the work of Tyndale and the work of Coverdale and finished and complete them and put them together. And so made a completed scripture together. The Matthews Bible is the first complete printed English Bible, meaning that before they had most of it printed, the New Testament printed, but a lot of it was still script. This is the first one that was completely gone to the printer. The first complete English Bible. 
It was also compared with two French Christian uh, translations, Lefebvre's and the Olivet Bible. They were used just to compare to make sure that it was still the right text and it said the correct things. The Matthews Bible was the work of John Rogers. You say, but it's called the Matthews Bible. Yes. He started to realize that if you put your name on your Bible, they would come hunting for you. And so he said, I'm going to say I'm Thomas Matthews. That way they could look for the wrong person. It's not me. So he was a friend and assistant of William Tyndale. Before Tyndale was put to death, he gave all of his handwritten manuscripts to John Rogers. So basically he had all of Tyndale's notes and his manuscripts. He escaped with them. To avoid being martyred, John Rogers decided to use the pseudonym of Thomas Matthews. That way they can't find me. Well, they did. He became the first martyr under the reign of Queen Bloody Mary. She was the first person he put to, she put to death what, just because he was trying to give the word of God to the English-speaking people. <laughs> then we come to the Great Bible. The translator of the Great Bible was Miles Coverdale. So he comes back again. The Old Testament had come from the Matthews Bible compared to the Latin Vulgate, while the New Testament was the Matthews Bible compared to the Vulgate of the Latin translation of Erasmus. So basically he's working and he's still comparing, still giving the language. It was published in 1539, just three years after Tyndale's dying prayer. And what was Tyndale's dying prayer? Lord, open the eyes of the king. Three years later... It, this was authorized by the English king to the people. It was the first authorized Bible. King Henry VIII wanted to aggravate the Pope and he authorized this work. So he says, oh, the Pope's still giving me our time. I'll show him. Guess what? You could print a Bible. Thou show the Pope. Okay. And so he authorized it. Matthew's Bible is the completion of the Tyndale and Coverdale work. Coverdale goes back and takes Tyndale's original work and then took the work that Matthews did, then revises them both and produces what is called the Great Bible. The printing began in Paris but was completed in London because the Inquisition began. Thank you, the French started having an Inquisition. By the way, what was the French Inquisition about? They were trying to get rid of all the Baptistic people and trying to get rid of anybody printing the Bibles, anybody who was Protestant. They, they said, only Catholics here. And so they were killing as many people as they could, causing the Christians to flee. And so instead of printing it in Paris or France, they now had to go somewhere else. They happened to go back to London. So what was so great about it? We call it the Great Bible. What is so great about it? Well, it was 16 and a half inches by 11 inches. It was a huge monster. It was so big, it was actually chained to the pulpits. And it was just a big monster. I mean, we have nice uh, sized Bibles here. It's a big beast that would sit there. And so they would open up, flip, and read the words. And so it was made for the English pulpits. The people really couldn't get access to it. But it was supposed to be the official Bible for the church of, uh, for England and the England churches. And just since it's there at the pulpit, they had to read from it, I guess. It was the first English Bible to place the books of the Bible in the order that we have them today. So up to this time, they were in different orders. And remember, that order is uh, uh, something in a logical form. We're thankful for the order that we have it today. The Great Bible was the first one to do so. All of these mentioned works that we said before from... Tyndale, to the Coverdale Bible, to the Matthews Bible, to the Great Bible. All of these were the work of one man. Now I'm just giving you a reminder of it because that's going to be important later on. There's a great potential of error when a translation is dependent upon one person. Meaning there's no checks and balances. There's no one checking the work. There's no one giving that feedback. There's just a potential. Now we're not saying that they were wrong. We're saying Tinsdale did a great job. We're just recognizing there's a potential when it's dependent upon one person. Which now brings us to the Geneva Bible. 
The Geneva Bible was the first Bible translated entirely out of the Hebrew and Greek languages without the use of Latin whatsoever. Remember, Latin was not one of the preserved languages, so they said, why use it? Let's just go back to the Greek and Hebrew and make sure that we're translating it from the original languages. It was produced during the reign of Catholic Queen Mary. Brought her up again. Many English Protestants fled to the continent, so when Mary's starting to kill everyone, they said, well, France isn't safe. England's not safe. We got to go somewhere else. And so they were exiled to Europe and settled into the Swiss city of Geneva, which started to allow anybody. So if you're running from the Roman Catholics, if you're trying to flee, if you need a safe haven, come to Geneva. And they begin to gather everybody. There was a group of men there who decided to produce a new English translation. It included in this group are Miles Coverdell, Theodore Beza, and John Knox. Those are big names that you should probably get to know if you want to know anything about uh, uh, history of church history during that time, English church history. This Bible became to be known as the Geneva Bible. Why? Because that's where they translate it from in Geneva in Switzerland. Work was done primarily by William Whittingham, who was brother-in-law to John Calvin. Now why is that important? Because it's going to have a very Calvinistic slant to it. And uh, we're not going to cover Calvinism right now, but it's going to have a Calvinistic slant uh, through all of its footnotes, through all of its explanations, through its translation. It's finished in 1557. Ezra through Malachi were translated directly from the Masoretic Hebrew text in the Old Testament. The updated revision was then released in 1560. So they send out uh, the New Testament. Then they go ahead and do part of the Old Testament and they put that together and then they kind of update it and revision. But this was the first English Bible to use verse divisions. What are verse divisions? Like we would say John 3.16. We know which verse. Uh, before then it was all written in paragraph form. Which again I'm thankful for the verse division so you guys know where we're reading from. We don't have to try to guess and find it. We are at the same place. It was the first English Bible to use italics for the words supplied by the translators. We had talked about that last time, speaking about the italics and what they're there for. They're not just to put emphasis, they're there to kind of show the work of the translators. And it was the first English Bible to remove the Apocrypha. Remember the Apocrypha was never considered scripture. It was just considered a history book. And they said, well, if it's not scripture, we should not include it part of the scriptures. It would confuse people. So let's not include them in the scriptures. It is sometimes called the third revision of Tyndale's Bible. Again, Tyndale had the biggest emphasis and it is the continuation of his work. Now, the Geneva Bible was a very good translation. A very good translation. It was published in a handy size. Remember the great Bible you couldn't carry it around. This was carried around in a uh, handy size. But something else is it had a plain readable type. The Geneva Bible was the first one to use Roman type. Before then, it was used as a Gothic type. The Gothic type is very unreadable. Very much unreadable. The Geneva Bible, they said, well, we need to make it so it's easy to read. So the S's don't look like F's and people can know exactly what we're looking for. And so they changed the type and people could read it. They could carry it around. They could have it for themselves. The Geneva Bible was dedicated to Queen Elizabeth I. By the way, she took over for Mary. It contained many outspoken Calvinistic notations as well as many anti-Catholic footnotes. Now remember, we're not trying to pick on the Catholics, but we're acknowledging the history. The Roman Catholic Church killed 50 million, I didn't exaggerate, 50 million uh, non-Catholics, Baptistic people, Protestant people. And so when you, the Catholic Church is killing all these people around you and you're trying to get a safe haven, you could almost expect that they're not going to be very happy with the Pope and the Church of Rome. Make sense? In fact, it is pretty much the most anti-Catholic Bible to date, pretty much of all time. Uh, they were not very happy with the Church of Rome and how they were killing people and lying to people and sending people to hell by not telling them that salvation is by Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
You do not get to heaven by works. You don't get to heaven by taking mass. You don't get to heaven by keeping the sacraments. You don't get to heaven by baptism. You get to heaven by trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And so because of that and because of the deception going out there, they were very much not happy with, the, with it. And so they were trying to convince people, tell them that you need to obey the Bible, not what you're told by the priest or the popes. It was extremely popular with the Puritans and the other nonconformist people that were against the church state. The people in the Mayflower, so remember the Mayflower came to America? They brought with them a Geneva Bible. Remember the Geneva Bible is the perfectly preserved word of God for the English speaking people for that time. It was a good translation. They didn't bring a King James. They didn't have a King James then. They brought over the Geneva Bible. It became the Bible of the people. It was the first official pres uh, version of Presbyterian Scotland. They said, this is our Bible. This is the Bible we use. William Shakespeare, whenever you see him uh, quote scripture, he's quoting from a Geneva Bible. That's the version he had. Now, let's learn the nickname for the Geneva Bible. Remember, the Coverdale Bible was called the Bugs Bible. Let's see about the Geneva Bible. In Genesis 3, 7, it said, The eyes of them were both open, and they knew, this is Adam and Eve, knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. That's what the authorized version says. But this is what the Geneva Bible said. It said, The eyes of them were both open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves britches. And so the Geneva Bible is often nicknamed the Britches Bible. Just... Neither here nor there, just interesting, that's what they called it. In 1643, the Soldier's Pocket Bible was published in England for the use by Oliver Cromwell during the English Civil War. Remember, they rebelled against the monarchy and they tried to overthrow the monarchy. Oliver Cromwell had a thing. Everybody in his side, all the soldiers were given Bibles so they could read the Bible for themselves. It contains selections taken from the Geneva Bible. 50,000 copies of this work was repent, reprinted in America and distributed among the Union soldiers during the Civil War. So they said, hey, you're fighting for the cause. We want you to read your Bible and understand what it was. And so they issued all the Union soldiers Bibles and the Bibles they gave them were Geneva Bibles. Because it worked for the English Civil War, it should work for our Civil War as they're trying to fight for what's right or what they thought was right. That's a different discussion. Smile. The final edition of the Geneva Bible was printed in 1644. In its 84-year history, over 140 editions had been made to the Geneva Bible, meaning they were trying to improve it, trying to get it correct, and it had a history of revival. Once again, it was the... Uh, perfectly preserved word of God for the English speaking people for that time and God used it to bring revival used it to bring people to salvation used it in amazing ways to bring people to himself it was a Bible mightily used of God then we come to the Bishop's Bible the popularity of the Geneva Bible concerned the clergymen of the state church of England. They go, uh-oh, the Geneva Bible's getting power. We're starting to lose our control and our authority. If the people stop, uh, stop listening to us, what are we going to do? Remember, that was the same thing that the Pharisees had. They were afraid that they were going to lose their power to Jesus. And <laughs> they weren't worried whether Jesus Christ was right or not. They were worried about losing their control and their authority. In 1563, Matthew Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury, initiated a revision of the Great Bible. So we need to get a Great Bible, but we don't like the Geneva footnotes. Let's try to make our own version that will make people think better of us. Fifteen men, including eight bishops, worked in several independent companies with Archbishop Parker to produce a translation. Now notice this. This is one where it's not just one person, but they have several people working on it together. It was a revision of the Great Bible, by the way, which was produced by Coverdell. Whereas the Geneva Bible had a Puritan flavor, the Bishop's Bible had an Episcopalian flavor or a Church of England flavor, meaning that the Geneva Bible was all about uh, Calvinism and hate the Catholics. The um, Bishop's Bible was saying, go Church of England, we're great, we're wonderful, go to our church. 
It became the official English Bible by English church convention, meaning they all voted. Who wants to make this our official Bible? And everyone who was invited voted yes, but no one who, who was not invited didn't get a vote. But because it was such a poor translation, they didn't do a good job with it. It never became the official English Bible of the English people. The people wanted a Bible that was correct. Not one that the translation wasn't any good. They wanted to see what the Bible actually had to say. And so even though it was official, the people never accepted it. They just went back to the Geneva Bible. Now the one benefit received from the Bishop's Bible is that it laid a foundation for England. The idea of a company of men working together to translate, to check, and double check, and correct, and recorrect one another's work. Meaning we want to double check that we're doing right. It's not dependent on one man, let's get a lot of people together to make sure we're doing it correctly. The reason why the Bishop's Bible is on our chart is not because our authorized version came through it by translation, but the idea of the method of the translation. That's why it's on our chart. This is going to be the big deal, as we're going to talk about next week, about the, the uh, translating of the authorized version, that it's not on one person, but it's 54 people who were top of their fields working together to make sure we had the perfect version, the perfect translation that was what the Bible said and not what men thought it should say. Now the New Testament of the Bishop's Bible was finished in 1566. The Old Testament wasn't completed until 1606. And then we come to the Reims Douay Bible. By the way, this is the English version of the Catholic Bible. So if, if Catholic has an English version, this is what they have, the Reims Douay Bible. This is not uh, this is an English translation of the Roman Catholic Church a Bible done by Jesuits in 1582, or that's when it started. William Allard of Oxford led this group that worked in Reims, France, which is why it's called the Reims Douay, Reims, France, for 10 years, and they moved to Douay and worked for 15 more years. So that's why it's called the Reims Douay Bible, because that's where they had made it. They translated the Roman Catholic Bible into English in 1610. That's when it finally released. And then just to show the sense of humor of the Roman Catholic Church, once it was printed, they locked it away and wished you to order that no one could read it or you die and go to hell. That was nice of them. So, ha ha, we got a Bible too, but you can't read it. That was nice of them. Now, we had started in 1 John 4, 1. Let's go back to here. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether of God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Why is this a big deal? Because the only way we can try the spirits is if we compare them to what Scripture has to say. And if we have God's Word, we can clearly line up every doctrine, every belief, every idea, every pamphlet, every sermon... And compare it to the scriptures and see what God's word has to say. It is not based of our thoughts. It's not based of our opinions. It's not the idea this is what Baptists say and this is what Catholics say. This is what Lutherans say and this is what Church of Christ says. It matters what God's word says. And everything is lined up to God's word. That's the big deal. But if we don't have God's word, we can't line up anything. In fact, the first law in colonial America dealing with compulsory or public education was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And this law said that we need to teach people to read the Bible as early as possible. Because if the people know what the Bible says, the atrocities that happen in Europe such as the Crusades or the Inquisition could not happen if people knew what the Bible said. And so we wonder today why people have a hard time reading. It is because it is a spiritual war. That Satan is trying to keep people from the Bible so much that he's messed up our educational system and made it so people can graduate college and they can't read their own diploma. And if they can't read, then they can't read God's Word. Or if it's difficult to read, then they're not going to read God's Word because it takes too much work. Then, because they don't know what the Bible says, they could be easily deceived to believe something that is not true. 
This is why this is such a big deal. This is why we're making this big, a big presentation for the last several weeks. Is because we want to have confidence that the Bible that we have is indeed the very word of God that God intended us to have. So we ourselves can know the doctrine. Whether it be so. Whether it be of God or whether it be of man. Because we could line it up with the Bible. What does the Bible have to say? For example... The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Do you know that God made it so anyone and everyone could go to heaven? Do you know that if we made it so you had to pay a million dollars to go to heaven, not all of us could make it? In fact, in this room, we don't have a millionaire among us. I doubt if we have thousandaires. And so if the requirement was to pay a million dollars, we wouldn't make it. If the requirement to go to heaven was to uh, go to church every time the doors were open, well, has there ever been a time in your life where you didn't make it? Well, then you'd be stuck, wouldn't you? And so would I. What if we made it that in order to go to heaven, we had to uh, be a good person? What do we mean by that? Some people believe that, that there's like a weight system and that my good works somehow outweigh my bad that I'll be able to slide into heaven. But the Bible says, for there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Think about this, that God cannot stand the presence of any sin. Hey, God, heaven's a perfect place. And so in order to go to heaven, we have to be perfect. But none of us are perfect. We've all fallen short. Somebody may say, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I try my best. Well, how about this? Let's say that I sin three times a day. That I get mad at my wife. I tell a little white lie. And I break the speed limit. Now, if that's all I do in one day, that's living a really great life. I mean, that's a better life than I live. And I'm a pastor. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that I live a great life and I just sin three times a day. Do you know at the end of one year, I would have racked up 1,000 sins. At age 20, just sinning three times a day, that would be 20,000 sins. At age 50, three times a day, that's it. Living a great life, I would have racked up 50,000 sins sins. Now if I went to heaven and died and stood before God who cannot stand any sin, the requirement is perfection, and I stood before him with 50,000 sins to my account that needed to be paid for, would I look good anymore? Not at all. You understand that I can't go to heaven by my good works. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That word wage is a payment. That means like we go to work, because I work, I earn a wage or a payment. The Bible says, for the wages of sin. Sin is anything that I've done against God. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness, don't tell lies. Every time I told a lie, I owe God a wage. Every time I disobeyed my folks, I owed God a wage. Every time I stole something... I owe God a wage. For the wages of sin is death. That word death carries the idea of separation. For example, if we had a funeral here and we'd had a casket, we would say that person was dead. Because their body is there, but what makes them them is separated. It's gone. That's called death. Well, the Bible says because of my sin, I deserve to be separated from God. And when I die, according to the Bible, there's only two places to go. Only two. A wonderful place called heaven or an awful place called hell. Do you know that God never created hell with the intention of man going there? God created hell for Satan and his demons to go there. And by the way, Satan does not want to go there. He's not the ruler of hell. God is the ruler of hell. Hell is made to torture Satan. But man goes there by default because there's nowhere else to go. In order to go to heaven, we have to be perfect. But we're not perfect. So unfortunately, the only other place to go is hell. 
That's what the Bible says. Not what I say, what the Bible says. We have to line things up with the Bible. Now you say, all you're giving me right now is bad news, preacher. I know. But we have to give you the bad news before we give you the good news. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God didn't want to see a single person go to that awful place called hell. So what Jesus did is He robed Himself in flesh and came on this earth. Lived the same life that you and I lived and He went through the same temptations, same troubles, the same heartbreaks. Then He died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine living a perfect life. He was the only one who could pay the price because He didn't have to pay for His own. He was perfect. He died on the cross, was buried on a borrowed tomb, and raised again the third day. When he rose again the third day, it proved two things. It proved, first of all, that he was indeed God. And the second thing, it proved that God was satisfied with the payment that was made. That when Jesus paid, it was enough. And now that it says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. We're just trusting in God. God has made a provision. All we have to do is trust in Him. And it's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. He's just giving it away. All I have to do is receive it. Imagine that you had a birthday gift. Someone's going to give you, it's my wife's birthday tomorrow. So imagine we're going to give her a birthday gift. And she looks at it and says, you know what? I appreciate it. I know that you sacrificed hard for it. But I don't feel like I'm worthy to open this. So you know what? I'm just not going to until I feel worthy. Is that what you guys want? No, you want her to tear into it. What if she looks at it and says, you know what? I don't feel like I've, I've done enough for you. So you know what? Let me go mow all of your lawns really first. And let me wash your windows and your vehicles. And then maybe I'll be worthy enough to open this up. Is that what you want? No. You didn't give her a gift to make her pay for it. You gave it to her freely. You already paid the price. All she has to do is receive it for herself. The same thing's true about salvation. You don't have to do anything to add to it. It's already a free gift. That means you don't have to go to church in order to be saved. You don't have to pay money to the church to get saved. You don't even have to help little old ladies cross the street in order to go to heaven. Now all those things are good things and things we ought to do. But none of it gets to heaven. The only thing that gets into heaven is by accepting that free gift of salvation. You know what that means? Baptism doesn't get me to heaven. I don't have to get baptized in order to go to heaven. I don't have to take mass or the Eucharist in order to go to heaven. Because Jesus already given to me. Those things are works. I'm saved because of the free gift that God gave me by His grace. And by faith I receive that gift. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God made it so that when we get to heaven, and we're all going to have this conversation, hey, how'd you get here? Nobody can say, well, let me tell you, it's because I lived an awesome life. Nobody can do that. Nobody can say, you know how I got here? Is I paid enough money to the right people and I slid right in. Nobody can say, hey, you listen, the reason why is because I just lived in the church and they couldn't kick me out. Nobody can say, hey, you know what? The reason why I'm here is because I was just stayed in the Baptist tank and I just fig figured that it would just wash my sins away and I'm, I'm prunish now, but you know, I, I made it. God made it so the only thing that each and every one of us can do is say, I'm here not because I deserve to, but because Jesus paid my price. And every single one of us have to brag on Jesus because that's the only way we got here. Not by anything we could ever do. Now, Remember, Jesus did the work, but there is one thing that we have to do, and we must personally accept that gift. That's one of the problems today of religion, is that people know about Christ, they've heard about Christ, they may even realize that they're a sinner, but they've never personally accepted the gift for themselves. There has to be a point, action, and time where you on purpose accepted that gift. That's what the Bible says when it talks about for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The Bible says about that gift, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him. That is a point action. That is an action that you purposely have to take. I purposely believed in Him. I on purpose trusted Him. 
For whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There must be a point action in your time where you realized you were a sinner. And because of your sin, you have offended a holy, righteous God. And you realize that Jesus paid your price and you personally accepted him to be your savior. It is at that point. Now, a prayer doesn't save you. I'll give you that thing. Jesus saves you, but you have to be willing to accept that gift. Now, a prayer is just a vehicle to allow us to purposely accept that gift. But the moment you do that, he comes to live within you and you become a new creature. I'm so thankful the Bible says that. I'm so thankful for the promise. I'm so thankful that he says in 1 John 5.13. Let me read that to you. 1 John 5.13. Tying it back to our lecture. 1 John 5.13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So he said these things, the Bible, I've written this to you. Why? That you may know. That you may know, to have evidence, to have a surety that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. God says, I've written this down so you could read it for yourself and understand that you can have eternal life. You don't have eternal life because a pope told you so, because a preacher told you so, because some person told you so. You should be able to know from the Bible because God writ written this down so you could see it for yourself. This is the reason why we need to have the Bible and have confidence that the Bible that we have is indeed the very word of God. Because it's through the word that we may know that we have eternal life. The Bible says try the spirits because there are many deceivers in this world. How are the way that we try the spirits? Through God's word. You need to know what the Bible has to say for yourself. And in fact, for every area of your life, we need to have a biblically defensible position. What do I believe about this? Well, this is what the Bible said. What do I believe about this? You know, today's society, we base everything off of feelings. Well, this is what I feel is right. Just because you have a feeling doesn't mean it's right. What does God's word say? This is the whole point of it, is for you to know what the Bible has to say for yourself. And you don't have to be dependent upon a church, an organization, or a person. You can be dependent upon God's word because God's word is not wrong. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.